Romans, you guessed it, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Enjoy the ride as we move, leisurely, but with great intention, to this glorious epistle. That epistle was written for all nations, that summary of the gospel that Paul was um, giving to the Romans, not because they did not know it, because he wanted them to know that he knew it, And desire to take it to Spain. It is salvation, root and branch. That very source of God's redeeming work and what it grows into. The transformation of every tribe, tongue and nation to worshipers of Christ Jesus. Romans 1 beginning in verse 1. Paul a bondservant or slave of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, through whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you are also called of Jesus Christ, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. You may be seated. O Lord, as we come to you this morning, with the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, that we might hear and believe that we might grow in righteousness that to the one who is in darkness, that you would bring them into your kingdom of glorious light. And to those who are light dwellers and the light bringers, may our hearts be moved away more and more from our own self-interest, even if those things are good, that you would bring the hearts of fathers and mothers to their children and children to their parents and families to their God. Lord, that we might see in our number and among our people not judgment of those who we think do not do it quite so well. But Lord, we have much here to work on. There is much sanctification that needs to be done And so begin not only with the household of faith, but this household of faith. That those who are seated might hear and repent of those sins that are in their hearts. Those actions that they commit that are unworthy of your love. And may we be a people wholly devoted to love and good deeds. That we might be a city on a hill, a light to the nations. All for your glory. And the good of those who dwell in darkness, we pray in your name. Amen. I will never forget. Years ago when I was invited by one of my old dear friends, though I've lost touch with him of late, Reverend John Payne, who is a minister in the PCA, was once my parents' minister was the pastor who encouraged me to come home from a lay parachurch foreign missions uh, in China 
uh, to go to seminary to be trained to be a pastor in Christ Church. A man that I looked up to, and so when he encouraged me to do that, I said, okay, I'll do it. Uh, seeking to follow the a wise counsel of godly men, while at RTS in Charlotte, I went uh, three times to the country of Peru, uh, two times to the city. It's weird, when I copied and pasted this intro into the email, it dropped the name. I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was you know, trying to protect the innocent. Juan Cavalica, which is a city in the province of Peru called Huancayao, which is in the Andes Mountains. Uh, to get there, we were traveling in this tiny little Nissan, three wide in the back. If you've ever been squished in a car, you know what that's like. And for eight hours, we're tri- driving on these uh, mountain passes with a complete stranger behind the wheel. And we're going around these turns, and there's like an 800-foot drop, one of those kinds of places. We arrive in Juan Cavalica, and we were there uh, to do what was called pastor's conferences. And these conferences were hosted and taught by John, largely, my dad, and I taught a couple of sessions as much as I could as a, you know, wet-behind-the-ears seminary student, the youth mainly. And we were teaching on, once year it was, uh, the ordered nature of worship as we seek to apply the regulative principle. (laughs) One of the Sundays we're there, we're worshiping together, and I'm overwhelmed by the sense And the reality that though I am 3,100 miles from home, that I am separated not just by geography but by culture, we're reminded of the uniqueness of their diet and our language and all of these things. We're worshiping in two languages, and yet we are worshiping the same God, and we are bound by water and the Spirit. And I think this is something that we ought to realize, that as it relates to our common brotherhood and sisterhood, we are united with the saints throughout the world, and when we gather for worship, we are one in Christ Jesus. And there is only one thing that makes that possible, and that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What Christ does in his death, burial, and resurrection, and the effect of it that we see in Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit is poured out, and all of a sudden these people from various nations and tribes and tongues all begin to speak one language for a time, is the undoing of the curse that we see at Babel. And as I said not that long ago, Even in my sermon series from Romans, there are but two religions in the world. The one in which man seeks to cover his own sins, knowing that he stands condemned before Almighty God, and those who are covered by the righteousness of Christ. And their only plea before the throne is Christ's righteousness, that they cover themselves. They are covered and protected by the righteous judgment of God. And in light of this glorious salvation, there are then only two kinds of people throughout the world. Even in Juan Cavalica. And the primary, the primary distinction is not color or language. It is heavenly citizenship. 
It is either in Adam or in Christ. This is the distinction that Paul later makes in Romans. And the only thing that unites us is Christ and the Father having sent the Spirit out into the world and uniting all flesh under that one head, Jesus Christ. And there's a reason why there are worshipers in Peru and in Gastonia or in any nation or tribe or tongue that is not Jerusalem and Hebrew or Greek. It is what? It is the floodgates of God's redeeming work that he has purposed to pour out on all nations by the sending out of the Holy Spirit, joined with the word of God, preached and ministered. The only reason it is possible for me to worship with those among whom I am a stranger and an alien, yet share a real brotherhood, is because Christ is raised. And this is the glorious reality that shaped the heart and the intentions of Paul the Apostle. And so this morning I want to talk about the gospel here in verses 1 through 7 as that glorious good news for the nations as we see in verse 5. Faith among all nations for his name. Two points that I want to make. Number one, called and separated. This is concerning Paul the Apostle. Called and separated. And secondly, a light for the dark places. A light for the dark places. Let's look at the first point, called and separated. Now, I've already spoken of the Greek word here, Paul, a doulos, a slave. It is a stronger term than that of bondservant. A slave is one who is bought, owned in essence, and is not free to do what he or she wishes, but their life does not belong to them. This is the kind of slavery that Paul enjoys having been bought by Jesus Christ. Now at one time, Paul was a very religious, devout Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was revered, admired in Jewish circles. He was a proponent of the persecution of Christians in the early days of the New Testament church. And despite his knowledge of the Old Testament, his righteousness before men, he later called those things dung, filthy rags. A kind of holiness that counts for nothing. A vain righteousness. And for that, Paul was under God's wrath and condemnation. Because he did not seek the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ, but sought to stamp out the name of Jesus Christ. And so Paul was saved in Acts chapter 9, not because of anything good in him, but because of God's extraordinary mercy. And so when Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, he is not exaggerating. He is not practicing a kind of um, self-deprecation to endear himself to the church as a kind of vanity project. No, Paul, you're not that bad. No, he was that bad. 
He sat or stood holding the robes of those who stoned Stephen to death and stood giving his support to those who killed Stephen. He was a violent, a violent persecutor of the church. But he was redeemed. And on that road to Damascus, Christ interrupted his journey as he was carrying letters, sentences of death and suffering to the church. Blinded Paul. Paul went and dwelt in a house for a short period of time. Later, Phineas came to him, proclaimed the gospel. The scales fell from his eyes. He was baptized and on that same day called to apostleship. Paul was also an apostle. Not just a sinner saved by grace, but he was called and separated. Now, he was first separated from a life of futility, a life of vain holiness. But he was also separated within the church as a big A apostle. What I mean by big A apostle is that office that no longer belongs to the church. Don't believe the billboards when you see, right, apostle so-and-so and and his wife, bishop so-and-so. Those are titles they've given to themselves. They don't count. Apostle is a title given to Paul by God himself, and we look at that title and that office as one. There were some qualifications necessary. Number one, you had to have seen Christ in the flesh. And so those who walked with Jesus while he was the incarnate one on earth saw him in the flesh. They saw him prior to his death in the flesh. They saw him after in his glorified state. And so did Paul. Paul saw Christ face to face and he was blinded by the glory of Christ. An apostle was also one who wrote, having been inspired by the Holy Spirit, Scripture in the New Testament to rightly interpret those things about Christ written before his coming, that Jesus is the Christ after his coming and how we are to live in light of his coming. And if you look at any of the epistles, what is it? It's law and gospel. How we are to live, Romans 14, in light of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And you and I need careful instruction. Much of 1 Corinthians is that kind of instruction. And many of the epistles are devoted to that kind of instruction. How now to live in light of Christ's lordship. An apostle was one who performed miracles as an attestation or an authentication that what the things they wrote were God's words. And they were called and separated for this purpose. And not only were they called to write scripture, perform miracles, but they were called to lay the foundation of the church by spreading out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the utter ends of the earth. It was, in a sense, the, the Big Bang of the beginning of the New Testament church. We see it at Pentecost. The explosion and the sending forth of the Holy Spirit into the world. And so Paul sees himself as part of this mission. And it is really for two primary reasons that Paul then desires to go to Spain. The first is this. One is intrinsic. Paul, having experienced the liberating power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, having been made alive, given new affections, longs to see that happen in others. 
That's the first. The second is out of obedience to God's commands and jealousy for his glory to expand. One is in response to sinners not yet saved, and the other is to a righteous God whose glory will be manifested. And this ought to be or ought to be our primary motivations as well. Number one, we ought to have concern, sympathy, pity for the nations. When we see Christ in the incarnation, his ministry on earth for those years, he got up on a mountain, he looked out over Israel, and he mourned for he saw sheep without a shepherd. Uh, You have opportunity this summer, I'm sure, to go to the beach. And when you go to the beach, uh, there are a number of responses like, wow, there's Sodom. I don't think I like the beach in the summer anymore. But there is also a response that ought to well up in your heart like, these are people who need the saving power of God and clothes, right? They need to be transformed. Their whole lives, their lives are a manifestation of what? The decadence of lives unbridled, unformed, unshaped, let loose by sin and unconstrained by the good news of Jesus Christ. And we talk about the decay of the culture in the West. Fine. But it begins where? With repentance. With repentance. And how is repentance given? When the word of God is brought near to the heart of those in sin. And I mean brought near. Like a shot across the bow. Like the word of God clearly, capably preached. And so when Peter in the book of Acts is proclaiming to the Jews in Jerusalem... These who put the Lord of salvation to death, he gives what is this glorious biblical theological sermon from Genesis to that time that the scriptures declare that Jesus is the Christ. And then the camera comes close, as it were, and he says, you put him to death. Well, I don't know, pastor, that's a little, I didn't come to church to be told that I'm a sinner. Well, you don't have to come to church to be told you're a sinner. Your heart tells you that all the time. You come to church for what? Not just to be told of the problem, but to be reminded or told for the first time of the remedy. Peter is not just saying, you Jews, you're going to hell. He's saying you're going to hell unless you embrace the Lord and giver of life. The Messiah whom you killed. And who has not killed Christ in their hearts? Who has not scorned his redeeming work in our hearts? Who has not laughed at a third violation joke? Right? If you read Babylon B enough, you're going to laugh at a third commandment violation joke. They're all over the place. Christians do it all the time. We bring the name of God low. We are all, each and every one of us, what? Well, how does Christ find us? In our natural estate, as Paul wants to go to Spain, who's in Spain? Those who've never 
heard the gospel. They've never heard it. It's never been preached to them. Spain was a land that was estranged to the preaching of Christ. Why? Because Christ just died and rose again a handful of decades ago. Not even, just a few years. For some of the apostles, and even by the end of the life of John, we're talking at most four decades. And there Paul walks among Gentiles and he sees them for what they are. The harvest that is white, ready to be brought in. And he is eager and willing and ready to go because his heart breaks for the loss and his heart is consumed with jealousy for the glory of God and he wants to bring sinners into contact with that thing, that message that brings about salvation. Because the nations need the gospel. Recently I got to be entertained by what is in my mind one of the most discouraging Christian deconstructionist debates I've ever been witness to. Um, Elizabeth Elliot is now with the Lord, wrote a number of books. You know Elizabeth Elliot's story, and I'm sure you know the story of her husband, Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was a graduate of Wheaton College. He's famous for saying what? About giving up one's life. That even when we give up our lives, we gain much for the sake of the kingdom. Elizabeth later went to the Indians, the very same Aka Indians, or whatever they're called. I'm sure some will be offended by using whatever name I use. She went to them after they killed not only her husband, Jim, but a number of other missionaries, Nate Saint, and I think it was two others. Well, Elizabeth Elliot came out with, posthumously, a biography was published about her life. And as I was perusing social media one day, there were a number of women commenting on how distressed they were about the life of Elizabeth Elliot, though encouraged by many of her writings, because of the colonial endeavors put forth by her husband, Jim. This is the problem in the world in which we live. We equate now the gospel with this notion of Western colonialism. And what they were complaining about was that the gospel that Jim was bringing was unfortunately tied to American colonialism. Now, if Jim was a colonialist, he was the most unsuccessful colonialist that has ever walked, right? He wasn't very successful at all. Jim landed in Ecuador. They began to minister among these Indians. Word began to spread that they were a problem. And so he and his friends were killed. Elizabeth later went to those missionaries... I'm sorry, went to those Indians despite their violence. And it is under the missionary efforts of her second husband and herself and others that that nation, that tribe of savages were brought to the gospel. You see, we live in a day and age now, even where if we go out into the world and we bring the gospel to people, what are we accused of? Don't let that stop you. We are accused of snobbery, colonialism, a sort of cultural superiority. But God has arranged in his providence 
for the gospel to go west. I don't know why. Not just west. One of the apostles went to India. And many of them went to China later. Why Spain? Well, because you could get there relatively easily. Spain was part of that continent that we call Europe. It was not too far from Italy. It was not too far for Paul to go by ship. Paul longed to go to Spain. Not because he wanted to impress upon them a certain kind of culture. But what? Because it was a dark place that was in need of the light of the gospel. It is not, therefore, theologically inappropriate for us to think of the nations as dark places. And this is told to us not by our textbooks, but by the scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, we read concerning a petition that God might display his glory. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you, for behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Secondly, this light for dark places, this is what Paul has. And it is the only help for nations. This is not arrogance. It is not impudence. It is the way things are. That throughout the nations, there rules a reign of terror, of demonic influence and darkness that is due to the fact that there is no word and spirit. And pouring forth from that place, that epicenter of God's mercy and grace, Jerusalem, and the ministry of the apostles, the water of the Holy Spirit issued forth from that heavenly temple that is the people of God and is even now covering over all the earth. I would say it's the opposite of arrogance to say that for we who dwell here in this country, if it were not for the efforts of Jews in Jerusalem, redeemed by the grace of God, you and I would still be eating our children. We would still be savages, sacrificing to unknown gods. And the only thing that redeems us is the gospel. Now, I I jest a bit, I guess. In the days of Noah... Man had grown exceedingly wicked. I read of that in Genesis chapter 7. And God brought judgment. When Israel was going into the promised land and they were making war with the nations and tribes surrounding the promised land and within the promised land, the kinds of people that God was bringing judgment upon were those who offered their children to foreign gods, the molten hot arms of Moloch, who were dressing up like members of the opposite sex and those worshipers of Ishtar and Baal. Sounds like San Francisco, right? And that's not funny. It's happening. 
We live in a day and age that is not unlike the days of Israel. In fact, in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul is writing and he's saying, Gentile and is Jew, there's not much difference between them. The Gentile nations were lost in darkness, and when the Jews moved into the land of promise, they simply adopted the God of the Philistines. You know who the Philistines were? They were the descendants of the Egyptians. By the time David became king, Egypt was ruling Israel again. Why? It was because Israel longed to worship the gods of Egypt. Man is desperately wicked. And so for the hope of Israel, the hope of the Gentile, the hope for us today, what is that hope? Because I'll be honest, it seems... In the areas in which I live, although maybe not so much here as elsewhere, but the pervading culture of the day is one that delights in wickedness, in death, in immorality. But the hope for Spain is the hope for us. In fact, in Titus chapter 3, this is what Paul writes to that young pastor. For we ourselves, he's speaking of the saints that Titus was pastor over. And for Paul, we ourselves were once all foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We were once here. Now we are here. We were once separated. Now we are part of. How do we go from there to there? From th- that place of, of judgment to that place of grace. How? We are transferred by the righteous, glorious power of God, his mercy, and by the work of the Holy Spirit, we are made alive, though we were once dead. So why does Paul want to go to Spain? Because it's a place of dead people. And God has given to him a ministry of resurrection. And the only thing that raises dead flesh is not classical education, It is not reclaiming the distinctives of Western culture. It is what? It is the clear, simple proclamation of Christ Jesus for sinners. We must be made alive. Now, all of those other things are good. But they are not what brings salvation. Paul desired to take that seed that seed of light and life that goes, and where it goes, it grows. Christ was promised. Christ came. And such is the whole history of men on earth. Don't let your history books fool you. In fact, even history books in most Christian schools. Do not look at history principally as the acts of God among men in the seeking of the honoring of his son among and above every human institution. 
Even in Christian schools, even Christian history textbooks are just a relaying of facts. But those facts are what they are because the father has given to his son a holy empire. And in the Old Testament, it was the glory of the Messiah concealed. And you saw it but in type and in shadow. And then with the coming of Christ in the flesh, all of a sudden, the glory and the manifest glory of Christ is made known to us. And what has happened since the coming of Christ is this pouring out of the Holy Spirit so that the church expands in such a way that had never been seen before. All of a sudden, all of a sudden the dial got turned up to 11 as it related to church growth. Now we look at it and go, it seems still to be taking a while, but the earth is big. Right? 2,000 years is actually not that much time. And what we have seen in 2,000 years, in contrast to the 4,000 years that preceded it prior to the coming of Christ, can you compare those two eras of the church? You cannot. Why? Because the instrument of church growth, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, had not yet been poured out. Because Christ had not yet been revealed in the flesh. Because the gospel had not been fully revealed to men. But now that it has, what do we see happening? Wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ goes, seeds are planted. People are saved. And in the same way that the gospel transformed Paul, it would transform the citizens of that nation of Spain. And this is why Paul is burdened. Because he knows that the gospel is powerful. And that the word of God and the spirit are powerful. I think sometimes we are less convinced of that. And I think oftentimes we are less convinced that the effect of a diet is because we've not done the diet. We are less convinced of the power of the word of God because our lives are functionally removed from the word of God. We do not open it. We do not hear it. We do not read it. We do not pray according to it. And I say we and I mean maybe some of us here and the church at large is impotent because we have said, if we open this thing and we do what God has asked, it will actually mean that our lives have to be transformed. And I love this world way too much. It means I'll be weird. <laughs> My friends at school will wonder, why are you like that? And I don't want to have to tell them why I'm so bizarre. It costs something. And Paul speaks of that cost, but it also gives something. In fact, God himself says that to those who lose their lives for my sake, they will find it. What Jim Elliot said was, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's a great perspective for Paul understood ultimately the call to go to Spain was a call to give up 
one's life to die so that in his own life he might bring forth life. In John chapter 12, Christ is certainly speaking of himself, but he's also speaking to the disciples. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Paul loved Spain. (laughs) Why? It wasn't the food. It wasn't the culture. It was the people. And it wasn't because Spanish people are different. It was because people are people are people. They're everywhere. You know, how does a pastor take a call? Well, he ought to go to a church where there are people. Which people? Well, all people are the same, right? They are all not yet what they will one day be. And no matter where you go, people are the same. They may speak different languages. They may eat different kinds of food. But in the same sense that the gospel is glorious and transforms lives, and it is wide and it is deep and it is high, so too the purpose of God to bring about salvation wherever the word of God goes. And the only reason, ultimately, why our hearts are not bound up with the spiritual well-being of others is because we love our lives too much. At the end of the day, if we do not love our children enough, it is because we love ourselves too much. If we do not love our neighbors, it is because we love ourselves too much. We are too interested in our own things. We must die to self. And as Paul was writing to the Christians in Rome, he was saying, will you endeavor to do this thing with me? Do you understand Do you believe this gospel that I believe? He was presenting to them truths that conveyed Christ as Redeemer, Christ as Lord of heaven and earth. And I think that brings us to this place, asking ourselves this question, where are our hearts? Where is our hope? Do we long to see the gospel spread? Do you hold fast to the one gospel of Christ for sinners? Can you communicate what that means in an elevator between the first and 14th floor? This is the gospel. Don't say um. Say it clearly. Say it boldly. Do you long to see the dominion of Christ spread throughout all the earth? Do you wish to go to Spain? I'm using that metaphorically. Some of you may actually want to go to Spain. (laughs) Do you wish to go? to those places where the lost are, are you ready to go? Do you know the gospel? And not just the orthodoxy of it, the syntax and grammar of those statements of salvation, but is your heart in it? Paul sets for us the example of a man who understands the glory and beauty of the gospel because he understands it is the remedy for any And for all.
that this is not just the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as doctrine. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for the transformation of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Let's pray. Lord.